Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. This morning we will look at a number of different themes. The one that I will focus on primarily will be the cost of discipleship. As we continue to go through verse by verse this, this wonderful gospel. And this morning I'm going to do something a little bit different in that I'm going to cover... A number of verses as opposed to focusing on just a few. Sometimes the text will allow me to do that. Other times it will not. But this morning we want to look at four major themes that will be unveiled here in verses 5 through 22 of Matthew 8. Let me give these themes to you just briefly and then we will elaborate on them. As we continue to examine the miracles of Jesus, we are going to discover more supernatural proofs of his deity, uh, his, his into infinite love and mercy, his divine compassion for those who have been ravaged by the effects of sin. So we're going to see more miraculous displays of God's glory in the miracles of Jesus. But secondly, as a theme, we will really answer the question, is there healing in the atonement? Many people say that there is. And, of course, we went into great detail about the dangers of faith healers last week, and I'll not do that again. But we want to ask the question and answer it. Does salvation offer not only forgiveness of sin, but also healing from physical illness and disease, death even? And thirdly, as a theme, we are going to be reminded of the increased rejection rather than the increased receptance of Jesus. It's fascinating. As we look at Scripture, we see in the ministry of Jesus that there's a direct correlation between the irrefutable, miraculous works of the Lord Jesus Christ that would prove his deity and the rejection of Christ. And you would think it would be just the opposite. We want to answer the question, why? And then fourthly, we will see once again that not all who profess Christ are really devoted to him. That profession and devotion are two very different things. We will reexamine the cost of discipleship and the primary obstacle to wholehearted devotion into Christ, something that will be very practical for each of us. Now, by way of review, in chapters eight and nine of Matthew, we see that Matthew is recording nine miracles that our Lord performed out of the many thousands that he performed. He's focusing primarily on on nine, three groups of three miracles and We've already seen the radical difference between the healings of Jesus and the apostles and the phony miracles of modern day faith healers and other charlatans that continue to plague Christianity with their self-serving deceptions. And last week we looked at the first of the first three miracles where the Lord healed the leper, a graphic illustration of, of, of sin and repentance and Now, this morning, we will look at the second and even the third of these of this first group of three miracles as we once again immerse ourselves in the glorious concept of the power and the compassion of Jesus in his miracles, especially the miracles of healing. 
Beginning in verse 5, we see, again, the second miracle in this triplet of supernatural power and compassion with the story of the of the um, of the Roman soldier, the centurion. Will you follow along as we read this passage? Beginning in verse five of Matthew eight. And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him and treating him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed for I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go and he goes and to another come and he comes and and to my slave do this. And he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. Let it be done to you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very hour. Now, we want to remember that Jesus' ministry was in transition here. The Jews were increasingly rejecting him, and he began to move more towards the Gentiles. And we see that Jesus despised the spiritual pride that he witnessed among the Jewish people. You will recall last week that they saw leprosy, for example, and other serious diseases as a sign of divine judgment against wicked and ungodly people. And what does Jesus do? He comes along and blows that concept apart and he heals a leper, again, exposing their pride. Then it's also fascinating to note that many male Jews of that day would begin their morning by praying, Lord, I thank thee that I was not born a slave, a Gentile or a woman. And so what does the Lord do? He comes along and he heals a Gentile's slave. And right after that, we will see he heals a woman. So don't think that the Lord just whimsically is doing these things. He has a method to everything and a reason for everything that he does. The first three miracles, frankly, were a direct assault against the arrogant pride of the Jews and their ignorance. So he comes now to this centurion at Capernaum. By way of context, the Jews hated the Roman army. They were an occupying force. They especially hated their officers because their officers were very brilliant, intelligent people, valiant warriors, but also and and centurions, of course, would command 100 men. But they were also typically very cruel. Most of the time they were especially cruel towards their slaves. Slaves were considered merely animals. But not this man. This man had a servant and the original language would tell us that this would have been a young child. And Luke, in the parallel passage of this story, in Luke 7, 2, tells us that it was a boy and the boy was highly regarded by the centurion. Luke's account also indicates that 
What the centurion did was to send some of the Jewish elders. He didn't want to make a scene by coming himself. He knew that if he came in amongst the multitudes that were following Jesus, it would really ruffle everybody's feathers, that he would be divisive. So Jesus understood and appreciated the, the centurion's sensitivities to his situation. And Jesus also would have been considered ceremonially unclean if he had anything to do with the the Gentile, especially if he went into his house. So the centurion sends a, a group to Jesus. And certainly Jesus was moved by not only the soldier's compassion and his humility, but we know that uh, he was moved especially by his faith. Luke tells us in Luke 7, verse 6, that the centurion sends the Jewish elders to greet the Lord, saying on his behalf, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. A clear indication that this centurion was a believer. And being moved by his faith, Jesus says to the people there in Matthew 8, verse 10, that he marveled and he said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. The centurion said through the people, just say the word and the servant will be healed. You don't even need to come. I trust you to do that. And then Jesus goes on and says something fascinating. Verse 11, many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What's he referring to? Many more Gentiles are going to come. And I'm thankful that that is the case. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here, right? Because I think we're all Gentiles here, or at least mostly Gentile. What a glorious promise for all the Gentiles. Those of us who were the wild branch grafted into the vine and so on, as Paul tells us in Romans. But it's amazing to think that we are going to someday dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. An indication, by the way, that that we will know them and they will know us. Isn't it fascinating? As you read through Scripture, you will see that in heaven there will be no need for introductions. You will not come up to Noah and say, uh, Noah, hi, my name is such and such. I'd like to meet you. No, Noah will know you and you will know him. And on it goes. A marvelous thought in and of itself. But Jesus says to them that that, um, many are going to come from east and west. They're going to come from all over. And they're going to have a glorious reunion. And folks, if I can pause for a moment again, what hope we have as Christians, all of us who have stood over the graves of those that have gone on before us, all of us who have embraced uh, loved ones for years and years. And suddenly we see the dirt go on that casket. We have the glorious hope that someday we will be reunited with them. And all of us who have left over left who have wept over loved ones, who have, who have not come to Christ. And maybe for some people they've passed. Uh, we've had, like, for example, I know um, I've got relatives who have prayed for other relatives. And those relatives died not knowing that the ones they were praying for ever came to Christ. And now they've come to Christ. What a reunion that will be to see that the Lord answered their prayers. What a glorious moment when children and spouses and mothers and fathers and friends on the streets will be reunited in the heavenly city. 
And notice what what the Lord says here. Many shall come. If I can capitalize on that for a moment. He did not say many might come. I hope they will come. No, dear friends, many shall come. And herein again is the power of the gospel. It does the bidding of a sovereign God. You see, Satan says you shall not come. And God overrules and said, ah, but you shall. Sin in our lives can say you can't come. But the grace of God says, oh, you can and you shall. And the fallen flesh says, I don't want to come. But God says, oh, but you shall. And people say, you mean we would even come even against our will? No, not at all. But by the grace of God, he will change that will. And those who have been elected and called and chosen will come to salvation. They shall come. You see, friends, it is the Lord who builds his church. He has promised to build it. And on the day of salvation, even the greatest scoffer will humbly surrender to the cross of Christ. And as a new creature in Christ, reach up to the Savior who suffered and plead for the mercy and the free gift of grace that was granted to him or her the moment they believed. But what an astounding contrast for the hypocrite lost in the ocean of self-deception. Look what the Lord says. But the sons of the kingdom. In other words, those Jews, many of you standing before me, so to speak, as Jesus would have said, You Jews who consider yourself to be the spiritually elite, the only chosen ones, just because you're descendants of Abraham. Those of you with Christ on your lips, but not in your heart. But the sons of the kingdom, he said, shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, once again, we see the enormous danger of spiritual self-deception. These were the false sons of the kingdom. They were actually the sons of the kingdom of darkness. It's interesting that according to Jewish tradition, sinners and Gentiles were basically synonymous terms. If you weren't a Jew, you were a sinner. And you were going to spend eternity in what they would call the outer darkness of Gehenna which means a fiery hill. That's the Greek term for the Valley of Hinnom, which was the name of a ravine in the southern part of Jerusalem, right south of Jerusalem, which uh, during the period of the monarchy was the scene for idolatrous cult worship where they would pass children through the fire, it was called. They would sacrifice children. And later on, it became a garbage dump where it would burn continuously. You know, it's sad to think that there are people, and maybe you've heard this before, people who occasionally will say, you know, I'm looking forward to hell because that's where all my friends are going to be. You heard that before? I have. The words of a fool. Friends, hell will be unlike any place we could ever imagine in our physical universe. It's a place of, and as we see even here in this text, it's going to be a place of both fire and and darkness, something that we can't imagine in our universe. 
So Jesus capitalizes on this teachable moment. All the Jews and and even Gentiles are standing around waiting to see what he's going to say to this entourage of people that have come on behalf of the centurion. And Jesus comes along and he speaks the truth about this man's faith and also about the reality that many Gentiles are going to come. And those of you that think you're just sons of the kingdom, many of you are going to be cast into the outer darkness. Jesus speaks the truth. Once again, no sugarcoating the truth. He didn't give them a gospel light. No seeker sensitive nonsense. Just the plain, simple truth. They shall be cast out into the outer darkness. Beloved hell, if I can speak on this just for a moment, this dreadful subject. Hell is a place of eternal torment. Never forget that. It's a place of weeping, which depicts suffering. It's a place of gnashing or grinding of teeth, which depicts utter despair and agony. It is a place where there is no light and where there is no light, there is no hope. In the language of the old English, our dear friend Charles Spurgeon says this about this particular text and hell itself. And I quote, As soon as hypocrites arrive at the gates of heaven, justice will say, There he comes! There he comes! He spurned a father's prayers and mocked a mother's tears. He has forced his way downward against all the advantages mercy has supplied. And now there he comes! Gabriel, take the man! The angel binding you hand and foot holds you one single moment over the mouth of the chasm. He bids you look down, down, down. There is no bottom. And you hear coming up from the abyss sullen moans and hollow groans and screams of tortured ghosts. You quiver, your bones melt like wax, and your marrow quakes within you. Where is now thy might? And where thy boasting and bragging? You shriek and cry, you beg for mercy. But the angel, with one tremendous grasp, seizes you fast and then hurls you down with the cry, Away! Away! And down you go to the pit that is bottomless and roll forever downward, 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 ne'er to find a resting place for the soles of your feet. Ye shall be cast out. End quote. So Jesus warns the people. But after he told them the truth of the consequences of sin, he follows that up with grace, even in this incredible contrast here between the truth of eternal torment And his compassionate mercy and grace. And he says, go your way and let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very hour. Jesus had made his point. The kingdom of God is not for the proud. It's not for the self-righteous. It has nothing to do with privilege or social status or race or even gender. Now Jesus turns to yet another outcast, the woman 
Notice in verse 14, and when Jesus had come to Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever and he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and waited on him. Friends, fevers would typically be an indication of some type of infection and they didn't have antibiotics in those days and many times when you had a fever, you would eventually die. And now, with great love and compassion, Jesus sees the need and he addresses this need once again to put his glory on display. By the way, Mark in Luke's account of this story indicates that her fever was high and evidently some friends and some relatives came on her behalf and asked the Lord to come. And so Jesus comes, he goes to her, touches her with his hand and the fever leaves her and she arises and then she waits upon him. What compassion for this Jewish woman and for a friend. Now, folks, you've got to keep this in mind. As you study the Gospels, the ministry of Christ, you will see that there is a growing animosity afoot against Jesus. Despite the many miracles. And it's fascinating to see the correlation. The more irrefutable truth he presents of his deity, of his messiahship, of the truth of the gospel, the more he is hated. Yes, the multitudes are still following him. But remember now, they're not following him because they see a need for the savior of their sin. But rather, they're looking for a blesser, someone that will heal us of our diseases and a man that can hand out free food and a man that perhaps can free us from the tyranny of Roman occupation. So despite the miracles, the animosity is growing. You have to ask the question, why was that the case? Well, the answer is quite simple. It was the message of the gospel that was so offensive. Telling them that he is the Christ, that he is the only way, that you are sinners and that you need to repent. And beyond that, he does the horrible mistake of speaking of the sovereignty of God in salvation, that it's not of works. In fact, in John six sixty five, he says, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father. My, the whole doctrine of election, of predestination, of being chosen by God. Jesus, you really blew it. You shouldn't have said that. People don't like that. In fact, the very next verse says that as a result of this. Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So the animosity is mounting. You know, it's interesting as I look at our contemporary evangelical culture today. If you read all the materials and if you ever want to see them, I get at least one a week telling me what I need to do to get the church to grow and to bring in the masses and so on. If you boil it all down, there's a common mantra between or, or by the church growth gurus, and they basically say this, and I, I'm paraphrasing all that they say. The, the surest way to ensure that your church will remain small, if it even exists, if it even will remain existent at all, is to teach on the doctrine of divine election, sin, repentance, holy living, and the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ is the only way. 
You do those things and your church will never grow. Well, you know what? They're absolutely right. They're absolutely right. And if your goal is numbers and popularity, don't do what Jesus did. That makes sense? Because people can't stand the truth. But if your goal is obedience to the Great Commission, to make disciples, then what you will do is do what Jesus did. You will preach the word regardless of the response. Why did the Jews have an increasing hatred of Jesus despite the undeniable miracles? Why do people today refuse to surrender their lives to Christ as Savior and Lord, despite the overwhelming body of truth that is known about Jesus and about the truth of the gospel? Their answer is the answer is simple. They love their sin more than the Christ who exposes it. In Romans one, we read that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And Jesus himself said in John three, Beginning in verse 19, the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. By the way, isn't it interesting? You love darkness, you can have an eternity of it. But they love the darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be Exposed. Now, back to the narrative in Matthew. Many are watching in amazement. They're bringing friends and relatives. Others now are going to take advantage of the sunset. Remember, these things were happening on the Sabbath, and many of the people were afraid of that because in the multitudes were the Jewish leaders, and they didn't want to somehow violate the Sabbath. But now that the sun is going down and the Sabbath is over and there's no fear of violating the law and getting in trouble with the authorities, we read that people begin bringing even those who were demon-possessed. Notice in verse 16, And when evening had come, now the Sabbath is over, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. In order that what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled, saying he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So here again, the Lord demonstrates his power, not only over disease, but also over Satan. But what does it mean? He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases Quoting from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 4. This really brings us to the third theme this morning. Is there healing in the atonement? Now think with me. If the answer is yes, then why is it that so many Christians are ill with various diseases? If the answer is yes, then why do Christians still die? But on the other hand, if the answer is no, then this text begs for relevance, doesn't it? Well, beloved, the answer is yes, there is healing in the atonement eventually. And that's the key. When the kingdom ultimately comes in. Well, let me explain this to you. Remember that disease and death are rooted in what? In the curse which is rooted in sin. That's the result of sin. 
And so deliverance from sin is at the very heart of the gospel, not deliverance from disease and death, which are results of sin. In fact, in first Peter two and verse 24, we read that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So ultimately, disease and death cannot be eradicated until sin is first eradicated. Now, although Jesus conquered all three on the cross of Calvary, sin, disease, and death, they all three remain with us, do they not? They all three remain with us. You see, friends, we all await the ultimate fulfillment of Christ's atoning work. And until then, disease and death will remain constant reminders of sin and the need for forgiveness and reconciliation. Remember in Romans 8, we read that all creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Literally, the unveiling of God, which will occur at his second coming in all of his glory. In Romans 8, 23, we read that we ourselves... Having the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, we as believers, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. You see, friends, at the second coming of Christ, you will have the, the culmination of redemption, the manifestation of the glory of Christ and his children. The revelation, the last book in the Bible, is the Apocalypsis Jesu Christu. The unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. What we're seeing here in the Gospels is Jesus in his humiliation. What we see in the prophecies, especially in the book of Revelation, is the revealing of Jesus in all of his glory. But until that happens, we wait, we long, we groan, we suffer. But we do so with a confident hope. As Romans 8.24 goes on to say, for in hope we have been saved. So Jesus is astounding the people with miraculous displays of his deity. And naturally some decide to follow him. A few of them for the right reasons and most of them for the wrong reasons. This brings us to our fourth theme this morning, the cost of discipleship. Notice verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side. And I've been to the place where this occurred, and you can see across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Obviously, Jesus was exhausted as he was dealing with all of the people. He gets in a boat to begin to go across. But before he can really get in the boat, we see, verse 19, a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, this is a curious scenario. This man was a scribe. One of the Jewish religious scholars, the elite of the elite. One of the teachers of the teachers. It must have been amazing for the people, especially the disciples, to have seen this prestigious man suddenly break ranks 
with the Jewish elite. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. The disciples must have been utterly shocked at Jesus' reaction to him. I mean, you would think that Jesus would have said, oh, this is fantastic. This is what I've been waiting for. Oh, my ministry is going to take off now. I finally got a guy like this that can get me into the inner sanctum of Judaism. And now the religious leaders will begin to follow me. And now because of that, others will follow them. But instead of that, Jesus says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What an interesting statement. Notice that Jesus didn't condemn the man. He did not even question his sincerity, his devotion. Didn't really question his commitment outright, but... What he did was to elaborate on the cost of discipleship. You see, friends, Jesus knew what this man was accustomed to. These men were wealthy. They lived a lavish lifestyle. They knew nothing of what it meant to do without. They had no idea of what it meant to suffer, to be ridiculed, to be persecuted, to be rejected. And Jesus knew that the vast majority that followed him were just like this man. They were simply fascinated with Jesus. They weren't worshiping him as Lord and Savior. Like many miracle seekers today, there are people that are intrigued with Jesus. You can imagine what this man and many others were thinking to themselves. Wow, this guy is incredible. This guy is a miracle worker. He even claims to be God. I'm not sure what all that means, but I'll tell you. Can you imagine what it would be like to throw in with this guy? You never get sick. Or if you do get sick, he can heal you. Instant food. Prestige. Look at the multitudes. Who wouldn't want this kind of a following? Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. But dear friends, very few professors of Christ know what it means to truly follow him. You see, profession and devotion are two very different things. And Jesus understood this. You know, Jesus often referred to himself as the son of man, a title of humiliation. It's used over 80 times in the Gospels. A title that would illustrate how that God in Christ, divested himself of his glorious attributes. You think about it. Jesus had no home. The only possessions he had were those that he could carry around. He had no chariot limousine. He had no large entourage, no lavish ministry headquarters, no well-paid staff to attend to his needs. He slept under the stars most of the time and occasionally in the homes of others. You know, the scribe here is really a perfect illustration of the Lord's parable in Matthew 13. Remember the, 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 the parable of the sower and the seed and how the, some of the seeds fell in the rocky places and that particular seed would, would spring up and promise to be a healthy, productive plant. The Lord says that these people hear the word and immediately receive it with joy. But he goes on to say, but there's no real root. 
Because as the sun of persecution because of the word begins to shine upon these people, that plant will wither and it will fall away. Beloved, the evangelical world is filled with those who will follow Christ for what they can get out of him in this life. No real commitment to follow him, come what may. Most people have never considered the cost of discipleship. Rather, the attitude is, oh, dazzle me with another miracle. Grant me a personal miracle to somehow make my life on earth better. But don't ask me to deny myself and follow you. The only cross that I'm going to bear is the one that I will hang around my neck with the pretty gold chain and the little diamonds. You see, friends, following Christ is not for spiritual sissies who come along and join the local country club called a church and then party the rest of their lives away. Following Christ means you declare war against Satan and against the flesh. It's exhausting, yet it's exhilarating. It is heart-wrenching, yet it is thrilling. The Apostle Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think of the faithful Old Testament saints in Hebrews 11 where we read that they were tortured. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, which means they would put animal skins with blood on them and then put them into the arenas with the wild animals to somehow cause the animals to salivate and to attack them. Being destitute, they were afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not even worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Friends, try that on sometime for an altar call and see how many people walk the aisles. This was at the heart of Jesus' words to this man. Notice the next scenario. It follows suit. Verse 21, and another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Again, the cost of discipleship, another superficial follower who wanted to be associated with Jesus for what he could get out, get out of Jesus for himself. He wanted to, but, but first he wanted to go bury his father. By the way, this was an indication that his father was, was old, perhaps about to die. And this man wanted to follow Jesus, but that was not his number one priority. Let me explain. The phrase, bury my father, was a figure of speech used in those days, and frankly it still is in the Middle East, referring to a, one, to a son's responsibility to tend to a father in his old age. To, uh, and, and if they do die, you would have to mourn for them for at least 30 days. And then you would also need to begin to fulfill any business-related responsibilities until... Um, until and, and even immediately after the death of your father. But here's the key. If you don't do that, you forfeit your inheritance. This was his priority, getting his inheritance. Jesus knew his heart. Thus, Jesus responds with a 
proverbial figure of speech, allow the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, let the spiritually dead tend to their own things that have no eternal significance. In fact, the parallel account in Luke's gospel adds more information with respect to Jesus' instruction to him. In Luke 9.60 we read, As for you, Jesus says, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. That needs to be your priority. Well, it wasn't. By the way, it's fascinating that in both cases here, the scribe and the second disciple, neither man is recorded to have agreed and, and changed their priorities because the cost was simply too high. In both cases, we have a problem, an obstacle that prevents people who are professors of Christ, who say they want to follow Christ, from actually doing so. What is the number one barrier to true devotion to Christ? Beloved, in both cases, it was a commitment to self-indulgence. That's the greater priority than self-sacrifice. Why is it that so many Christians are unfaithful? Why is it that so many Christians you never really see involved in service for the kingdom? You never see them disciplined in their own personal pursuit of holiness? You see so few living obediently? The answer They're more committed to themselves, to self-indulgence. And yet Jesus says in Matthew 16, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Friends, may I ask you, are you truly devoted to Christ? Or are you like these followers who are enamored with his personality? You're intrigued by all of his promises. Maybe you've even been astounded with certain miracles that you've known of in your life. Or maybe you love being attached to friends in the church. But you're really unwilling to give up your creature comforts, your luxurious lifestyles, your commitment maybe to family or career, your obsession with personal riches. Ask yourself... Where do I truly sacrifice for the Lord? Now, now I, I don't mean in some grudging way or even some occasional way, but I mean as a habitual lifestyle. And you do it with joy because nothing brings greater joy than serving Christ. Where is that in your life? Can you imagine, friends, the impact of even... Calvary Bible Church, if, if every member made his devotion to Christ their number one priority, think what that would be like in this church. No longer would 30% of the people do all the work of the ministry within this body. No longer would 50% of the people bear the financial burden of the church. No longer would 10% of the people be devoted to prayer and discipleship and evangelism and music, and all the other important ministries in the church and even outside the church. You see, being devoted to Christ does not mean that you ignore tending to your aging family members. That, that's not what the Lord is saying here. It doesn't mean that you forfeit your inheritance, that you've got to somehow just divest yourself of all earthly goods. 
But it means that if you have to, you will, because you will not compromise. It doesn't mean that you have to abandon your career. It doesn't mean that we all have to rededicate our lives and become missionaries to New Guinea. That's not what the Lord is talking about. But, beloved, being devoted to Christ is merely making your obedience and serving Him your number one priority. Faithful in loving your neighbor. Faithful in helping the poor. Faithful in exercising your gifts in the local church. Faithful in in, in the regular giving within your church body. Faithful in devoted prayer. Faithful in discipleship. Faithful in growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Faithful in especially leading your family to Christ and ministering to them. And of course, the number one priority for a Christian, according to Jesus, is a faithful commitment to the systematic teaching of divine revelation. Yet how many times, and this grieves me to say this, but how many times do I see people who are devoted to everything but the preaching and the teaching of the word of God? These divine priorities are quickly abandoned if a higher priority beckons. I don't have time for personal devotions or I'm too tired to go to church tonight. I've worked hard this week. (coughs) Too tired to go to church today. My favorite team is playing. You know, my career just simply won't allow me to lead my family spiritually the way perhaps I need to and. And so, fortunately, I'll let the church and Sunday school do that. Or you have all these rationalizations. My, I I could give you so many. Here's one. Well, you know, just because I watch TV 20 plus hours per week and I watch hundreds of Hollywood movies every year doesn't mean that I love the world more than I love Christ. Oh, really? Or just because I spend the vast majority of my income on myself doesn't make me a bad steward. Really. Just because I don't share the truth about Christ all the time and, 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 and really preach the gospel or because I've never discipled anyone else doesn't mean that I'm not devoted to Christ. Because after all, those things aren't my gift And I'm not really required to do those things. Really. And on and on the game goes. Beloved, don't live your life like those in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. We talked about it this morning in Vanity Fair. Self-indulgent lives of meaningless frivolity. Or you spend your life doing things that has absolutely no eternal merit. You see it everywhere we turn. The Super Bowl. Halftime entertainment. Great example of where our culture has come. Where you have a trollop in front of all those people desperate for attention. Disrobing and you have some pusillanimous pansy singing in falsetto. About immoral things. It is little wonder that our country has been abandoned so by God's grace. Beloved, we're soldiers of the cross. We're at war. We've got to remember that. And I want to close with this thought. 
As I was thinking this through, my, my heart went to Isaac Watts's old hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? And here's what he had to say. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? While others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. May that be the prayer of our hearts this day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Speak to our hearts and give us a conviction to follow you, come what may. For we ask for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.